episode 35. Today, I'm speaking with Martin Trussell from Aclaris about consumer-driven healthcare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. They say the more you know, the better able you are to outthink your competition. The information that Martin Trussell from Aclaris talks about today, I would definitely consider as critical to anyone who is attempting to serve or pick up market share in today's healthcare landscape. Aclaris is a firm that provides health savings accounts to consumers and high deductible plans. And when I say health savings accounts, I'm using the term like a layman. There are actually a number of different flavors of these so-called account-based plans, which Marty explains far better than I could. Interestingly, Marty is in a position to see firsthand the impact that these high deductible plans have on consumer behavior. We talk about how these things may impact providers, pharma, employers, and and payers themselves. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. I am very pleased to have Martin Trussell on the program today. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Marty. Hey, good to be here, Stacey. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about you for a sec. How is it that you came to be working for Aclaris? Well, uh, Aclaris is a uh, kind of kind of serves a lot of audiences, both uh, health plans, TPAs, uh, and, and other types of entities. And and throughout my career, I have had the opportunity to work for all of those types of entities. I've worked for uh, two or three TPAs uh, during my my career, as well as a, a couple of health plans and some other HR-related companies. So it, it's all come together uh, here in a consumer-driven healthcare space and, uh, and then with, uh, with Aclaris. When you were a child, you dreamed of working for a TPA? And, and <laughs> yeah, don't we all? <laughs> you're dressing, dressing up in your TPA helmet? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think most kids do, uh, at least in my neighborhood. <laughs> Can you just talk a little bit about Aclaris for those of us who are not in the anywhere near the TPA space? You want to talk about what a TPA is exactly and what Aclaris does? Sure. Well, starting starting off, TPA, the, that acronym stands for third-party administrator, and that can mean a lot of different things. For Aclaris, what Aclaris does is uh, provide the technology platforms and, and claims processing technology necessary to administer consumer-driven healthcare plans or account-based plans. Uh, and we also provide the services to do that. And we do it all on a behind-the-scenes, private-label basis. So what we do is empower health plans, large financial institutions, uh, HR, outsourcers, and those types of large entities that want to be in the account-based plan business. In other words, they want to be able to offer their clients, their employer clients, HSAs, FSAs, HRAs, commuter, all those types of uh, of benefit programs. But they don't want to set up the infrastructure to actually administer those programs and service those programs. So that's where Claris fits in. We sit behind the scenes. We do all of that work under uh, our clients' brands, and uh, they get all the credit for it. Before we get into playing the acronym game where I ask you to explain all of the the acronyms that you just laid down, why would... (laughs) 
you know, let's get into brass tacks here. Why would a payer want to put together the, these kind of plans? What's the impetus here? For a payer, and, uh, you know, by that, I think we're talking about a health plan, essentially. You know, we're seeing a major shift over the past five years to high, higher deductible health plans. And uh, coming in to support uh, those deductibles, I think uh, I saw a study out in December that the average deductible now is $1,217 for a single plan. And, and then the, the out-of-pocket costs now are, are three to $5,000 on top of that. So these account-based plans are tax-preferred plans that allow individuals, allow employees to put money aside tax-free to help pay for those deductibles and health plans. So why, a, why an, uh, a health plan might be interested in doing that is that as the deductibles rise, the interaction between the consumer and the health plan really gets put off for quite a while. And, and in fact, in a, any given year, it may not really happen much at all because the the individual, the the plan participant, is still, you know, meeting that deductible. So uh, most of their interaction then is going to be with whoever is providing the services behind those account-based plans that they're accessing to pay for the doctor visits and the prescription drugs and that kind of thing. So for for a health plan who's interested in really controlling that that consumer experience, it's important that they get involved in in offering these types of plans. Let me summarize. We've got across the healthcare industry today a trend toward these higher deductible plans. And as soon as a consumer signs up for one of these higher deductible plans, and wow, twelve seventeen as an average deductible for a single plan, that's that's some dough. So as soon as a consumer signs up for one of these high deductible plans, obviously it's gonna be a while before they're reimbursed for anything. And that's where you guys come in. You sit in the front end so that a consumer can set aside, you know, $1,217, for example, inside a tax, is tax shelter the right word? Well, uh, probably not tax shelter, but a ta tax-preferred tax plan, tax-free uh, money that they can set aside for medical expenses. So that they effectively are setting aside pre-tax dollars to pay Correct. for these expenses, which they are likely to ring up since insurance isn't paying for these things. That's right. Now, you had tossed down a bunch of acronyms earlier, like FSA, HRA, HSA. What's the difference between these things? They're, they're very similar in, a, in, in that they're tax free money that can be set aside for medical expenses. Uh, the, the major differences come into play with whose money it is uh, initially. Uh, let's start with an FSA. I think those have been around probably the longest and most people are maybe familiar with those. And they can be applied to really any kind of health plan, uh, PPO, even with copays. People take advantage of flexible spending, a range of flexible spending accounts. And that's what the FSA stands for. And that's essentially where you say, I'm going to, to your employer, I'm going to put a, a, away X number of dollars this year in this pre-tax uh, pre account to pay for medical expenses. From day one, those dollars are then available to you and you need to submit a claim to the, the TPA, the third party administrator who's administering this program, and show that you had a legitimate medical expense. And if you did, then you reimburse your money. So that's, that's the FSA. The HRA, Health Reimbursement arrangement 
is the employer's money. And it's basically, I, I like to think of it sort of like your uh, your expense account at, at work, you know, uh, where the employer is saying, you know, I'll reimburse you for legitimate uh, medical expenses up to a certain dollar amount each year. It's in, in this case, it's the employer's money. So if you have a, a, a claim, then you file the claim, the, the employer reimburses you. If you don't uh, have a claim throughout the year, then, you know, that's fine. The, the, the employer isn't out any money, nor does the employee have any money put into this account. And then the third one, the more, most recent one, came about about 10 years ago. We just celebrated 10-year anniversary of the health savings account, the HSA. And that's uh, more like a, um, if you want to think of those as more like a 401k. So it's your money. It can be the employer's money. Really, anybody can put money into the HSA up to the annual limits. And um, the, once it's in the account, it's there to be used for, again, legitimate medical expenses as defined by the IRS to pay for, for health care costs. Or you can just keep it there, uh, which many people do and pay for their out-of-pocket expenses, you know, out of their regular checking account, saving up those dollars that could be used then at, at retirement for medical expenses or just uh, as, uh, as income, at which point it would be taxed um, as income. But it's, a, it's, uh, it's a great savings plan, long-term savings plan for, uh, for people who are, are looking to set aside tax-free dollars, let them grow tax-free, and then, uh, and then be able to pull them out at a later time without without a tax penalty to uh, pay for medical expenses. Does that help? That that <laughs> helps. I'm taking some copious notes here. Okay. That was pretty fast. <laughs> I ran through it pretty fast. I know. <laughs> it's all good. All right. We talked about why these account-based plans are, are important, namely because high deductible insurance plans, health insurance plans are, are having their, their day right now. But why don't, do you have any insight relative to why insurance plans are gravitating towards these high deductible plans to begin with? Well, there's, there's several different reasons. Uh, I can't really point to, to one in particular, but increasing medical costs in general have driven up the, the premiums that uh, employers pay for, for these healthcare plans. And those first dollar traditional, more traditional uh, PPO plans have gotten um, to be quite expensive. Just in the past week or so, we've seen some institutions like Harvard University that you know has always prided itself in offering a low deductible health plan, first dollar kind of coverage, begin to um, move to uh, a high deduct, higher deductible plans. So uh, to bring down the, the the premium cost of just providing the insurance, and that that premium cost is normally split between the employer and and the employee at some level, usually the employer taking the lion's share of that premium cost. But uh, they have premiums have reached a point where, just like with your your homeowners or your auto insurance, you know, if you want to have first dollar coverage, your premiums are going to be pretty high. But if you're willing to accept some of that risk at the at the front end and increase your deductible, then your monthly premium is going to come down. So it works works the same way with health insurance. So that's one of the reasons. A, a secondary reason is part of the Affordable Care Act has a provision that most uh, most everyone calls the Cadillac tax, and the Cadillac tax is a provision to really kick in, in in 2018. And when that comes about, there will be certain dollar limits that, um, that can be paid annually in premiums 
for a single plan or for a family plan. And anything, any premiums paid in excess of those dollar amounts are subject to, I think it's a 41% or 40% uh, excise tax. So it's pretty hefty. That's, that's to be paid uh, by the employer. So a lot of employers now are, are looking at that, looking down the road now at 2018 and saying, gee, we really have to do something because our plan's already, in most cases, bumping up against what those maximum premium uh, levels are. When they get to 2018, for sure, they're going to be paying that, that tax unless they start doing something to reduce their, their premium costs. And one of the means of doing that is to implement a higher deductible. Patty Peoples, who is the the president of the healtheconomics.com, she used an interesting analogy, which was squeezing the balloon. She said healthcare costs are like squeezing the balloon. And if you squeeze costs out of one area, oftentimes they'll just like a balloon show up bulging someplace else. It sounds like despite the fact that healthcare costs overall nationally in the health system are decreasing, one of the reasons why they're decreasing is because these costs are being offset towards patients. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that that's uh, what's happening on the uh, in, on the private side is that these costs are getting shift to the uh, the employees on the on the public side. They're a result of cutting reimbursements on on Medicare in particular to to providers. So you know, if it's is it real savings? You're right. It's kind of hard to tell, and, and uh, will it pop up somewhere else? Uh, that's yet to be seen as, as as well. But I think the one thing that consumer-driven healthcare, which equates to the higher deductible plans, is designed to do or intended to do, and and there's some evidence that it's working. It's intended to engage individuals more in their healthcare and making decisions and, and checking out what the, does the plan cover? Can I get preventive services? Are there lower cost alternatives? And um, that is, is also beginning to work its way into that lower cost equation, at least to a certain extent. It's a little hard to quantify to what extent it is at this point, but uh, at least the, the trends seem to show that, that individuals in these plans are becoming consumers really of, of healthcare rather than just just accepting just accepting what what they're told to do and, and 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 going forth with that and there we get I think really to to the heart of this we are all very much talking about patient accountability and talking about how important patient accountability is and patient responsibility for their health are to health outcomes on one hand but I wonder how equipped providers are really, on the other hand, to be able to articulate what the costs are. And if I'm a patient being put into a situation where I am being asked to evaluate, for example, should I take the cholesterol medication? And a provider is, is kind of unwilling to or unable, more, more accurately, to, to provide what the cost of that is relative to a pharmaceutical product, or it's probably even more complicated as we talk about medical procedures. You know, how much does a medical procedure cost? It concerns me, or I'd be interested in what your opinion is relative to how successful this can be until healthcare costs are fully transparent. Or is this all kind of, there's a bunch of loose ends and we're trying to ravel them up simultaneously. So this is a multilinear operation. Uh, I'd say multilinear operation. I think that there's a lot of people coming at this from a lot of different uh, directions. 
the provider in in a lot of cases is probably the last person in the chain to go to um, regarding costs because you know they really have a difficult time telling you what the cost is for an individual in any given health plan because their contract with that health plan is probably different uh, from what they have with the next health plan so depending on what your health plan is that's going to depend on what your you know what what the cost is for that provider so a lot of provide or a lot of the payers now the health plans are developing tools that are web based to help individuals uh, understand the cost and, and some of the alternatives and take a look at the providers and within the network versus out of the network and that kind of thing to help guide that decision process. And, you know, and then there's a whole area of, of startups that are, that are starting to see this as an opportunity. I just saw an article the other day online. It was called the Uber, I can't even say it, Uberization of healthcare. And it, it talks about how Uber has sort of uh, taken over the uh, transportation business in a lot of cities and, and how healthcare providers are, are starting to do the same thing. There's a website called PocketDoc where you can go on and enter you know, what you need to have done. And, and it, again, these are for voluntary uh, or for non-critical situations where, you know, you need to have a procedure done and you can have it, you know, you can kind of choose the time and place and that sort of thing. And, and, and so you can maybe go on and see who's available, who would like to do that at what price and that kind of thing. Uh, and again, for these, these procedures that would fall within that, you know, three to thousand to $5,000 out of pocket limit that you're, that you're going to be paying. So it kind of makes sense to, uh, to do that sort of thing. And, and I think we'll be seeing more of that type of direct to consumer service offerings from providers that are kind of picking up on the, uh, on this opportunity. I definitely can see the the impetus for this. I, I just am still thinking like a patient who's now being put into a situation where the patient is accountable for their health and is being expected to make these decisions relative to what their treatment should be. I can imagine, you know, so a, a patient sitting at a cardiologist's office and the cardiologist says, oh, you're going to need a stress test. Let's get you a stress test. I'm not sure that it would be, is it realistic for the patient to go, hmm, let me get on Pocket Doc and see if there's a less expensive alternative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, it really comes down to the, uh, to that, you know, an individual decision and, uh, that person is, you know, in uh, particularly great health and and uh, concerned that, about this, and and uh, you know the relationship with the physician is that yeah, this this needs to be done. I think I think the answer is you go ahead and do it. One of the things about the high deductible plans that a lot of people uh, tend to miss as well is that if you are chronically ill and or if you have a catastrophic type of situation where you know you have the heart attack or you have you know you have a cancer diagnosis or something like that and you blow through that deductible most of these plans are designed to pay a hundred percent beyond the deductible so with some of the quote lower deductible plans the PPO plans there's a, a, a co-insurance corridor that tends to go on for quite a ways once you reach the deductible you're 
still in a situation where, you know, it's an 80-20 type of payment situation. So in a lot of cases, you can get really more out of pocket in those traditional plans than you can with a high deductible plan when serious stuff happens. And when serious stuff happens, you just got to, you got to, you got to go with the treatment. But, uh, you know, I think that the cost situation then mitigates itself once you get past the deductible. And it also would would seem to be becoming absolutely quintessential then for providers to educate patients relative to the importance of the treatment that they're recommending, as well as why, you know, what exactly it is and, and why it matters. I think in the past, patient education has been this sort of, I don't want to say nice to have, but maybe secondary thought. It, it wasn't really one of the, you know, if you'd probably quiz 15 providers, really, how important they would rank patient education. I'm not sure in the past whether anyone would have said it's number one. You know, the most important thing we can do here is educate the patient. Then we'll worry about what the evidence-based medicine suggests, for example. Mm -hmm. But it Mm -hmm. almost sounds like now that patient education is moving its way up in the ranking because really, unless a patient understands why they should do something, they simply won't do it. And it doesn't matter what the evidence-based medicine suggests if you've got a patient who's not doing it. Oh, that's so true. And you mentioned evidence-based medicine and value-based medicine. And I think that I see a lot of health plans implementing those types of networks. And, you know, one of the things that technology has allowed us to do, big data actually, is to be able to crunch all of these numbers and identify within a, a group of physicians or a group of providers who is providing the highest value per episode of care. And then, then the health plans can develop reimbursement plans and networks around those types of providers. So, you know, to a certain extent, then it it takes some of the consumer knowledge out of the equation. So the consumer doesn't have to be so smart anymore because the health plan itself has gotten smart about where to direct these individuals to receive the the highest quality care at the lowest uh, cost and, and the best outcome. Wow, that's really interesting. I have never heard a pro from a consumer side relative to, for example, a limited distribution network. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like in this particular way, what a payer limiting provider sites, the advantage there could be that they are helping a patient find the the highest value uh, site of care. Right. I had never really considered that before. And I think most people would regard it as as soon as their freedom to choose a provider starts to limit, they regard it as a bad thing. But maybe there's a positive there. (laughs) Well, you know, one of my stops along the line was with a a staff model HMO. And so I I sort of became a believer in those types of protocols at that point. (laughs) So I think they still they they still work a lot. But I can I could definitely understand that still the first usually the first question out of a consumer's mouth when they're looking at a at a health plan is is my doctor in the network. (laughs) So do you see From a provider standpoint, that it's going to be really incumbent on providers 
to talk about costs. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of hospital ads, you know, for example, and often we see, you know, pictures of very competent looking doctors and pictures of fancy looking equipment. I've never seen a hospital ad say, and oh, by the way, we're the lowest cost in the area. Do you think that that's going to be something which is going to <laughs> I, I doubt, you know, I think it'll be a while before we, we get to that type of process. I think with some of the more routine types of services, uh, we may begin to to see that. And, uh, you know, the classic example there is LASIK surgery. So this is a type of surgery that is, is normally not covered by insurance. People are paying for it out of pocket. And, you know, so the quality, the service, the price has all always been kind of a factor in the advertising of, of LASIK surgery. So, you know, I, th I think that, you know, for certain diagnostic testing and, and those types of uh, more routine services that, that we have out there that, again, are going to be hitting the deductible for sure, that we may see some. I, I, you know, I doubt if the hospital or the, 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 the begins to advertise a price advantage because, again, usually once you hit the hospital, you're probably going to be th running through that deductible and, you know, you don't have much, you won't have much uh, skin in the game after that anyway. I would wonder whether uh, providers will start playing the, for example, the, the pharmaceutical industry has long given patients um, copay reductions, mm -hmm. you know, copay cards. You wonder whether there's going to be, you know, MRI coupons. Well, that could be interesting. Yeah, that could be interesting. <laughs> but the other thing, it, it sounds like it's going to be more incumbent on both providers or maybe even more so suppliers of you know, pharmaceutical products or medical devices or, or, you know, even technology. Now, all of a sudden, it's not one pharmaceutical product competing against another pharmaceutical product. It almost sounds like it's one pharmaceutical product competing against acupuncture. I mean, if we're if we're putting the decision making more so into the patient's hands, there's no guarantee that they're actually going to stay within what I would consider the you know, Western medical community. Well, that's true. There's not a need to do that because those types of alternate treatments are, in in most cases, part of the expenses that are that can be paid for through the uh, the account-based plans. Wow, that's really interesting. So, what else can could be a viable option for a patient? As they're making, you know, if I'm making a cost decision, pretty much anything that can be covered in my account-based plan probably is on the table. Mm-hmm. So we've got acupuncture, which is now a much more viable option. What what else might be now more realistically on the table? Because I'm paying for it anyway. Well, I'm trying to think. What? Well, <laughs> I don't know. From a medical procedure standpoint, you know, I haven't really thought about that uh, too much. You know, I do know from a, from the pharmaceutical standpoint that certainly it's it's a big wake up call for people on prescription drugs, on brand name prescription drugs in particular. You know, once they figure out that their monthly bill is is really one hundred and fifty dollars instead of the ten dollar copay that they had been paying, then they get real <laughs> real engaged in trying to figure out what some other alternatives are. And other alternatives may be a generic, and they may go back to their physician and say, "Gee, could you?" prescribe the generic. Or they may say, hey, you know, go back again back to their physician and say, are there other ways that I can control this blood pressure? I mean, if I maybe cut salt on my diet, if I exercise more, you know, those kinds of things can can I, you know, 
get away from taking this high blood pressure pill altogether, whatever the situation is. So, um, you know, I think that that's, uh, you know, probably what's driving most of the alternate uh, discussions at this point is once people figure out, you know, go to the pharmacy the first time with their high deductible plan and pay that full cost of, of the brand name pharma, uh, pharmaceutical. So it sounds like if I were a pharmaceutical company right now, what I would really need to be thinking hard about is how exactly I'm going to make sure that the patient themselves understands exactly what the clinical differentiation is or how well, why the patient from the patient's standpoint might consider paying the extra dollars. Yeah, I think that's uh, there's a lot of advertising dollars on the on the evening news that uh, <laughs> push that for sure. <laughs> Are there any trends relative to the behavior of consumers who are now responsible for a significant amount of their healthcare costs? Are they starting to skimp, for example, on preventative medicine? Some of the studies out there that have been going on for a while, for example, I think Cigna, Cigna is in their eighth year now of studying their CDHP customers. And, you know, what they've found in, in through, through the eight years is that their CDH customers had the same or even higher compliance on best practices than their more traditional customers do. So again, you know, I think it, it, it becomes part of the engagement process that, uh, that the higher deductibles, the consumer-driven healthcare plans are bringing to the consumer. And it would also sound like education is going to be really important here both what's covered and, and what's not, because isn't um, some preventative care covered by uh, high deductible plans? Yeah, most consumer-driven healthcare plans, particularly uh, those that, that are HSA qualified, are required to provide preventative care on a first-dollar basis. So that's the, the, there's no out-of-pocket for preventative care. Do you happen to know whether those the preventative care which is covered aligns to, for example, the NCQA quality measures? You know, is there alignment there? I would. Think. I don't know what the yeah. I don't know what the direct alignment would be there. Are there any tools that are available to help consumers understand their account-based plans? I mean, it would seem to me to be very important if you had a high deductible plan to understand if there were these account-based plans which are available, so you could get the money in there, so at least you'd get pre-tax dollars mm -hmm. um, discount. No, I think the most important thing is beginning with the, the employer needs to, to make sure that they're doing some education about the plans, what the plan choices are, and how the plans work. And it really needs to begin before, probably six months before, a high deductible plan is, is installed at an employer. And then they, it needs to be continued year round. You know, there needs to be continuous uh, reminders of, did you know that, you know, you can use your dollars for this? Did you know that, you know, you can put this amount of money into your plan? Have you done that yet? And those kinds of reminders uh, throughout the year, I think, are really important. I, I think that uh, the education really, you know, needs to be that, that kind of a push message rather than, oh, there's a website out there, you know, you can go out and look it, look it up. No one's going to do that, you know. Um, so I think I saw something last late last year that said people are more willing to have a root canal than they are to shop for health insurance. So this is not something that, you know, people are going to just come home from work and get on a computer and and educate themselves. But I think these little blips, these little messages that their employer or their health plan can push out to them throughout the year is uh, helpful.
Where can people reach you to learn more about uh, Aclaris if they're interested in, in continuing the conversation? They can reach me uh, personally on, on LinkedIn would probably be the best place. Martin Trussell out on LinkedIn you can learn more about us uh, at Aclaris.com, A-C-C-L-A-R-I-S.com. Awesome. Well, I thank you so much for being on the program this morning, Marty. Thank you, Stacy. I enjoyed it. Links to everything discussed during the episode today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. I'll tell you the other thing that you will find at RelentlessHealthValue.com, and that is a way to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe, the cool thing is that you don't have to remember to go to the website every week to download the new episode. It will automatically be sent to you in one of two ways. The first way is you can type in your email address in the, there's a, a sidebar on the right hand side of the website where you will find a place that you could type in your email address and then you will get an email once a week with a, a link to download the episode. So that's one way to go. The second is is also in that same right-hand sidebar on the Relentless Health Value website, you will find a large orange dot. If you click on that dot, then you'll get taken to a place where you can click on the subscribe button in iTunes. If you click on that, then each week your iTunes will automatically download the episode, which you could choose to listen to on your computer or on the podcast app on your mobile phone. If you enjoyed this episode, please, I beg you, uh, it would be really, really helpful if you would rate and review the show either on iTunes or interact with us on Twitter. Our uh, Twitter handle is Relentless with only one S, health. So Relentless with only one S, health. I would love to hear from you. We would find it very inspiring over here at the Relentless Health Value podcast. I thank you so much for tuning in and so much for spending the time with us. Thank you.